You're checking out the Nifty Q Show. All right, good morning, good evening. Good night. Welcome into another edition of the Nifty Q Show. We're interviewing influential founders, leaders, and people in the NFT industry. Today, I'm sitting with Marshall Shuttle, co-founder of the Chris Gray's Project. We'll be talking in-depth about the NFT photography scene, his own work as a photographer and artist, what he's building at the KGP Project, and the integration between NFTs and books, and much more. Marshall, you're one of the first back-to-back guests. We literally interviewed you like less than 24 hours ago on NFT Live just to kind of get in-depth on your project, but I'm excited to talk to you here today uh, about NFT photography, about the scene. Uh, you super knowledgeable on it. I'm not, so I'm excited just from a personal standpoint. Hopefully, you guys at home are going to take in some stuff. But how are you doing today, my man? Well, first and foremost, thanks for having me back. It's uh, it's, a, it's a real treat for me to be able to talk again. Um, so I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I had a crazy night. Uh, I wrapped up uh, talking to you yesterday, hopped in the car, went to NFT Tuesday in LA, met some uh, some people IRL for the first time, had some great talks. Hop back in the car and did the cannonball run back to Vegas. So I'm uh, I'm I got a full moon drive. I'm well rested. That's awesome, man. Tell me a little bit about this event out in LA. Uh, I love like IRL events. I love meeting people for the first time that I only know by like their pseudonymous PFPs. So how was that event yesterday? It was cool. It was cool. It was very chill. It was at this place that El Cid uh, up in like Silver Lake. It was like it was well attended. Everybody was super cool. I had a presentation on this really interesting AI based project. Um, it was. Really Right. You know, those, those IRL events are always so funny. It's like, you know, I've been to like, you know, like BTC Miami and New York and stuff like that. And it's just like, you're kind of, it's like the first 20 minutes to an hour when you're in these things, you're like looking at everybody, like they wish they had like a name tag. And then like, eventually like you see somebody like, Oh, I know you from being doxxed here. And it's like, Oh, and then like, eventually everybody kind of clicks up and everything like that. So it's always this fun little kind of mingle. <laughs> Was it a conscious choice to be like fully doxxed? Or did you ever have the idea like, Oh, maybe I should be like a profile picture and just that and just stay behind an anonymous profile? I mean, the, you know, the grass is always greener, I think, but as like an artist coming into this space, like for me that doesn't, you know, I mean, like I have, you know, I've been a, a working artist in traditional sector for 15 years. So it's like, for me, like right on, I just made the decision that it was just like, you know, if I'm going to talk about, if I'm going to be involved in projects where that are talking about or my relation to that field, and that experience, like, I think I just need to be very front facing with who I am, um, which, you know, in this space, it's, you know, for better or worse, like there are definitely some people that like, you know, if you're not a non, I'm sure they kind of look at you like, oh, what does this person want from me? Like, what is this? You know what I mean? Like, and I get that. Like, I totally understand that. So, um, but I mean, you know, grass is always greener. Like I said, if it goes the other way too. Yeah. You're doing some dope stuff in the space as well. Uh, specifically in the NFT photography scene, you guys are doing some cool things with like book integrations as well, uh, with your release here, uh, with Morningstar, which is going to be awesome uh, on that Chris Gray's project, uh, platform. But I want to kind of lay the foundation with an industry discussion because you have so much knowledge about something I have no knowledge about. I, I'm a gamer. I'm a collector. I'm all of these different things. I am not an art head. I'm not a photo- an artist. Is like I, that. That side of my brain just doesn't work apparently. But uh, let's get into a little bit of your background and let's make our way to like what the photography scene looks like today. So let's let's see how you became an artist uh, growing up and then found NFTs. This is like one of my favorite conversations to have because it's like it, it applies to the entire space. And I just don't think people totally realize it yet, but it's a good entry point for kind of how things are operating as a whole. Um, my back, background is I started photographing when I was like 15, 16. Um, and then I went to undergraduate in, in New York City, uh, right outside New York City. Um for photography. And that's where I met Chris Grapes, who was actually a couple of years ahead of me. And so, uh, as well as a multitude of artists, we still work to this day, which is pretty crazy when you think about it. Um, so I went to undergrad there and I, I left and I went back to upstate New York and I started showing in museums and galleries and I was in this biennial and I got like a, a representation at a couple of different galleries. And like, you know, I was doing that whole thing, you know, submitting for grants and fellowships and like just basically trying to figure out what it meant to be a living, working artist in photography in the fine art realm. And so, uh, honestly, like I never was able to get to a point at that stage in my life where I was able to make it, you know, totally support myself. So I was always bartending at night, um, you know, throughout my undergrad. And then 
you know, I did this big project in upstate New York uh, that was like these 25 massive, like five foot by seven foot prints, like just this whole huge endeavor. It took like a year and a half of my life. It was crazy. It was super privileged to be able to do it. Like mm-hmm. it was the youngest person they ever basically handed this gallery over to. And they were like, go nuts, kid. So it was like, it was a total dream. But the reality of the situation was too, is like I came out of it realizing like, um, you know, it is very difficult to be kind of like a living working artist in photography or you're in any medium really like you know selling your work through like a gallery and doing these types of exhibitions and everything like that you're always kind of like you always kind of have to have like nine or different things ten things going at once to like have a shot at you know them doing an income stream so i kind of went a little nuts and i was just like you know what i'm going to do what i always wanted to do i've always dreamed of of, of making a, a project in las vegas because like i feel like no one's really done it the way i want to do it so like i got rid of my apartment and i sold all my stuff and i threw whatever i had into a car and i had a condo on the outskirts of town to stay at for two weeks and i just drove straight out to las vegas and uh i had a, two names on a sheet of paper that a friend had given to me and little did I know that those two names would be two of the most important names in my life for the next 10 years. Um, you know, one of which was like my, one of my best friends now. And I just kind of started meeting people, showed up to bars with those names, started meeting people, found a job bartending, found an apartment and just spent the next six years working my way into the city, into the community and all the while just bartending by night, photographing by dawn and uh, just making this body of work. So it was a, so it was a crazy, it was a crazy experience. And, um, all the while I kind of, I started going to grad school at the time too. So I was like bouncing back and forth between Vegas, bartending, finishing this work, going to grad school, going through this whole process of academia and like kind of how you're supposed to do these things to become like a serious fine artist. And, uh, you know, there were some things that I started to experience around the edges of that, that really turned me off to the whole process. And, Fortunately enough, though, I simultaneously reconnected with Chris Graves right at this time. And so it was right around then that he approached me to to publish the the Vegas work Morningstar. And um, we became fast friends again. And next thing you know, we're on the road during the pandemic working for National Geographic on like three month long stories. Holy and I'm on, shit, I'm, that's big. I'm, a, yeah, I'm on the election trail. And so just kind of this this really interesting period where there was like I was I kind of started my my career you know, in undergrad with Chris and like just super passionate about doing things the way I wanted to do things and everything. And then there's this big kind of space in between where it was like, I was kind of trying to play this gallery game, this museum game and, and make the work that I wanted to make, but kind of being like hindered. And then we kind of reconnected at the end. And now we're kind of doing this unexpected thing together. So there's, it's a, it's a very, it's a very interesting kind of story of all roads leading to this place that was never expected, you know? And that's, that's all, that's often how life works, huh? It's, it's yeah. interesting how it comes to uh, fruition like that. I'm interested in this like checklist or, or this timeline that you're talking about as a photographer. I think people have started to understand the plight of like artists in general through NFTs, like speaking the truth of all these artists, because we've seen a lot of artists come through the NFT scene and actually start to make a living and more. Uh, and we kind of understand, like, here is the checkpoints, uh, or at least we understand a little bit about uh, the, these artists and, and their kind of journey. What is that journey and in, in that, that timeline of a traditional photographer? Like, I got to go to school, and then I got to get into a big a gig, and then, and then here's where I make it. Like, I don't know that because the photography scene is just kind of coming up now in the NFT scene. What does that timeline look like? traditionally and how do nfts change that it's 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 two words exposure and acquisition uh, it's it leads into a really interesting thing because the fact of the matter is like a lot of times now we we kvetch about um you know web 2 basically starting this whole idea of this false promise of exposure uh as a model of compensation and like the hurry up and wait idea of that eventually you will be taken care of for the fruits of your labors uh, if you just give, give, give. But that was stolen from the traditional sector. I mean, those people didn't come up with anything revolutionary. They just saw what traditional like art uh, commodity, you know, facilitators were doing. And they're just like, oh, we could do this in digitally and like, you know, monetize these people's intellectual property. So traditionally, what you're looking at is like, 
and granted, like the steps are different for everybody. I know artists that blew up at different points in their careers, whether or not they stayed there is an entirely different discussion. But I knew artists that blew up like right before coming out of undergrad, you know, with very little background or training because they were just well positioned or somebody that really liked their stuff, put them in the right spot at the right time. But I would say traditionally, um, kind of the conventional road that, that I would, you know, speak to at least in the past 25 years has been that you would basically go to like undergraduate studies. You would kind of like work on learning your practice. You'd go back out into the world, maybe for a few years, do some exhibiting, do some more shooting. You would apply for a master's program, uh, preferably one that kind of spoke to maybe the type of work you were doing or what, where you wanted to be going, because a lot of them are kind of a little clicky as far as like the different circles. There are definitely, I'll put it this way. There are museums and galleries that pay very specific attention to certain schools. So going to certain places sometimes is a funnel for also some of those schools employ professors that are represented by some of those galleries and things like that. So you go through that, you choose to go to grad school. If you want to, you start showing, you do group shows, you do, you know, um, start doing exhibitions. And then, then that's where traditionally things like books would come into play. You know, you would make like your, your art books, um, because the whole idea is, you know, only so many people can go to an exhibition, but if you make a book, you can get your catalog out there at all these different museums, all these different galleries, your audience that see your work, they see you're progressing. They want to bring you in for an exhibition, et cetera, et cetera. It's supposed to, it is supposed to spiral in the sense that it's like, oh, well, you're doing all this work. We're seeing it now. We're seeing it now. We want to show it. We want to show it. Let's give you more attention. Let's give you more galleries. Let's give you more sales. It's meant to be this kind of perpetual motion cycle of like, oh, well, you're doing it. And yeah. so like you're being compensated. The reality of the situation is I don't know a single working artist in photography that doesn't have four jobs right now. Uh, well, outside of like, people, well, I shouldn't even say people, in the, the people I know in the NFT space that are doing very well right now have 10 different jobs right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but traditionally it makes, you know, on the surface, you, it makes it look like there's some people that are really doing it. But the, the reality of the situation is like people take those under those master's programs degrees and they end up teaching because they need a stable income source. And then they're taking private commercial gigs from editorial or from companies to do campaigns. And then they're doing their private practice and selling at galleries and music. Museums. But the reality is none of those revenue streams is usually that good unless you're like you're really like in a sweet spot that mm -hmm. it's going to totally carry you as like a working artist. So everybody's doing like three different things at once, burning themselves out. It's just like no one's talking about it because everybody's afraid to step on, you know, the hand that feeds them. But the reality of the situation is the model's been broken for a long ass time. And you would be surprised from the amount of people that are as working artists in fields that come from backgrounds that afford the, the financial ability and stability to kind of explore the, these options and kind of find mm. their groove. It's very prohibitive if you don't have a little bit of wiggle room or, or comfort. Yeah, I see that. Okay, so, you know, I'm jumping forward a little bit, but I do want to ask this question off that uh, great overview. How do then NFTs change this paradigm exposure acquisition <laughs> exposure is dictated by you acquisition is dictated by your audience traditionally in the realm that we work in exposure is dictated by middlemen or the overseer the gallerist the magazine the publisher acquisition is dictated by the curator the gallerist the facilitator the auctioneer so We've basically knocked out the two key pillars in this book and or excuse me, in this model that's that's basically built all these nasty things that have been so prohibited for us. And we basically created a, a bridge to connect directly to that audience. Now, the grass is always greener. Of course, not everybody can get on podcasts and do 10 hours of Twitter spaces a day and be a social media hype machine for themselves to find that audience in the NFT space. And so that's why a lot of us now are, are having these discussions about like, how do we help elevate other people? How do we create systems that give them the chance to expo give, gain exposure without having to put themselves out in front of everybody on a constant basis? But as it is right now, the reason the NFT space is so, is so successful and important for traditional artists is what you're seeing is you're seeing what an ecosystem looks like when everyone that over the years built themselves um, a gate at the table, it got flipped over when the lights were off and they haven't even realized it yet. But all you're seeing is basically, you're just seeing an artist and you're seeing patrons of the arts and even just other, and other artists as patrons as well. You're seeing them all interact with each other on a level where there isn't a, a middleman, mm -hmm. a facilitator. 
there's marketplaces, but they're not dictating who should be buying what. And also the percentages are, are variable to a point that it's amazing. So um, when you remove all the fees, when it comes to traditional production, music, gallerist cuts, acquisition cuts, uh, the fact that artists are receiving royalties for the first time in their entire lives, where you traditionally auctions and donations have been a very, very messy, murky way of inflating speculative value to artistic commodity that's often manipulated by the gap, the buyers and gallerists and has nothing to do with the artists reaping any of those benefits. You're seeing all of those funds for the first time in my lifetime pour back into the collectors and the artists in that ecosystem. And so what you're seeing is you're seeing an art market go at 100 miles an hour with gasoline poured on it. And this is kind of, of course, it's got its pros and its cons. But realistically, what you're seeing is you're, you're seeing artists and creatives for the first time experience the biggest windfalls of their entire lives. And that has set them on a trajectory that's going to have them producing work and protecting this space for the rest of their lives. Do the curators and the gallery owners and all of these middlemen that traditionally existed, do they know that they're getting displaced? Do you, do you talk to these people and they're like, uh, I need to create a platform to serve Web3 artists now? Like, what, Do they know what's happening? I mean, you know, that's why you see so much lazy FUD. Um, it's like, you know, like pick or choose. You, you, you want to have the, uh, you want to have the dirty capitalist argument or the environmental argument today. If you want to do 10 minutes of research, we can have an actual discussion, but that's, you get lazy fun. And what I can tell you is I know that there's things going on behind the scenes with some stuff right now where people are very seriously trying to dip their toes into it but they don't know how to circumvent the narratives on some stuff right now. So there are people that are trying to come in. There are people that are playing around with it. There are people that are very savvy that understand and see kind of the long-term ramifications of that. And so they're positioning themselves to, to be, to be in it. But the, to your point, the fact of the matter is that with the amount of money that some people are making, it's inevitable that those people in those traditional, uh, those traditional roles are going to wait much longer before trying to insert themselves into the picture because they're going to realize that they're going to wake up one day and their lunch is gone and that they weren't really needed in this kind of new system. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe in curation in the sense that not as, not as gatekeeping, but I believe curation can help actually bring spotlights to artists that traditionally don't have a voice or are underrepresented. Uh, underrepresented. So for me, curation is all about using a platform or your pre-existing voice or role in a space to bring forth an artist, maybe from a part of the world that doesn't have access to traditional art markets or isn't well known in the NFT space and saying like, Hey, let's all just take a look at this person's work. I think it's really like relevant and emotionally resonating and their story is important. And the way they tell it is beautiful. Curation for me is not, I'm going to tell you what you need to be buying because that's you know what i mean there's there's a difference between bringing the work to the table and then letting people decide and then versus being someone that like tries to manipulate markets so i think that's a big distinction we need to kind of realize between curation because i'm not against these one-to-one curated platforms by any means um because i know you know i've worked with some of the curators and i i know kind of what their ethos and mission statement is well let's hop into like the financialization talk uh that you kind of touched on prior to us pressing live i thought it was a fantastic point like people that maybe aren't getting their toes, just like in any industry, if you're not on the front lines and you're not, you know, doing the research and have that inherent knowledge, you're not going to know how to, you know, evaluate what's valuable and and what's not. So uh, let's talk about that, that piece that you touched on before the episode. How should someone that's brand new or just getting their toes wet or, you know, even experienced, how should they be looking at the photography market, the art market in the NFT scene right now? Um, yeah, and to, to, to piggyback on kind of and to lead into this, like, you know, you, well, yesterday we talked about that that Gary Vee interview where, you know, he was kind of pandered to in a sense with, you know, the question of like, oh, well, this is just like money laundering and like, you know, all this evil stuff. And he just kind of smirked. But the reason he was smirking, so everyone's clear, is that she was proving his point. And what's happening in the NFT space is you're just watching traditional art markets play out, but you're watching them play out in the open for the most part. Don't get me wrong. I know there's some complex stuff going on in some circles, but for the most part, you're seeing transactions on the blockchain out in the open and you're seeing how the buying and selling of art is speculative commodity. This has always been the business of art. It's just traditionally been behind the closed doors of gallery curtains, institutions, 
auction houses. People have been doing this forever. You just weren't invited to the table before, but now it's wide open for everyone. And so that's where you get this whole FUD of like, well, you know, like people are, people are laundering money or so. I'm like, yeah, people that have affluence and wealth that want to invest in art, is speculative economy, park that money somewhere. That's how the economics of capitalism work. So, I mean, this is nothing new. They're just mad because an entire new generation and a whole new sector of people are partaking in it. They're just mad because they're not getting their 30, 40 or 50 percent. That's all that is. So just to be clear, um, but, uh, you know, as, as far as the, the photography space is going, I think that there's been like a really easy pivot for photographers. Um <laughs> We were in this really interesting position as artists where traditionally when you sell artwork, you know, as like a painter or a sculptor, many times there's just like the one piece that exists. And so, you know, if you want to buy my painting, you buy my painting. If you want to buy my sculpture installation, you buy my sculpture installation. But as photographers, we kind of got tricked into this game of making addition prints. And what I mean by that is like, this is a really messy, weird system. So I take a picture. It's a banger. Like, I know, like, this is going to be one of my, this one's going to go in the books. And I'm like, okay, I need to sell this to make money as an artist, get into museums. I decide, okay, if I make six of, if I agree to a contract that I make six of these and those six are going to cost this price and six people can buy them at that price and they're going to be numbered, and signed, and documented. They go out into the world. That's all I can ever sell at that size, at that price. I've turned them into commodity. You know, I've mm. created a scarcity by defining the limit of their existence. And that allows them to live on in secondary valuations on marketplaces, be traded by museums, have inherent value that rises. Okay. So for us, the, the NFT space for the first time, one pretty much the first time in our lives, gave us the idea that, like, hey, do you photographers want to sell your, your images as these one-to-ones? And for us, we were just like, oh. Can we charge the same that like somebody would charge for a painting? And the the marketplace resoundingly said, absolutely. Why not more? Mm. And we all just went, oh my god. So why did that inflection point like like what happened to make you guys get tricked into selling additions? Like why was that the situation where you, the you know the photography market or artists were just like, yeah, we'll do that as opposed to selling a one on one? Because there wasn't the internet. Uh, you know what I mean? So it's like, it was tied into, it was, it's always been tied into that exposure model and everything like that. So it's like in an era where the only way that you were seeing work was in person, uh, I mean, television, I guess, but you know, in person publications and museums and, and um, uh, physical prints and like people's houses and things like that. So, I mean, it was just like, you had to do that because you had to get the work out there. But I mean, now we're in this this dark timeline where it's like we were all tricked to this whole like exposure is the means of of like, you know, monetization that was just like a broken promise. Now our work is all out there in the ether. That's the whole cool thing about this space that, you know, for me is just like the, the thing is like we already stepped over the, the precipice. Like mm. the idea that you can like gatekeep and like, you know, the idea that you can like protect and gatekeep your work and your images from being out there and the white noise and the ether moving forward is for me insurmountable. Like I, I, I've just fully given over to the fact that it's like, if you want to see my work, like you can see my is accessible for you as possible. Mm. So the idea that you can kind of chop it up into these things where it's like, you know what I mean? Like the idea of me like selling, you know, hundreds of prints these days is like laughable. You know what I mean? Like it's like, who's going to buy, you know what I mean? Like who wants to buy hundreds of prints, but the idea of me selling hundred NFTs, absolutely. I'll see you soon. You know, like mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be there, you know, no worries on that one. You know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, w- I want to get into kind of what you're doing with KGP here uh, and Chris Graves, right? Like you brought up Chris Graves uh, multiple times here and it, it almost seems like, you know, there would be a, a name that you would throw out there maybe in the gaming industry or the collectible industry that if you didn't know who that was, I would be like, how do you not know? I feel like Chris Graves is that name. <laughs> I don't know who, who he is, but he seems to be a really, you know, uh, prominent figure here. Uh, he just tweeted out, like, uh, I believe today or, or yesterday, uh, this picture uh, from you guys visiting Berry Creek in California. Uh, and I, I want to, like, tie this in. So what type of artists, like, do you see yourself as? And are you and Chris Graves going in, like, all, like always kind of looking to get into the communities and like really affect like societal change with your work. So I know that's a double-sided question, but like what type of artist do you see yourself as going to all these places? And then 
uh, who is Chris Graves, essentially. Yeah, I mean, well, so the interesting thing, it's a, it's a very interesting point. Like, as artists, like, we kind of traditionally live in these, like, echo chambers and these, like, these channels that are, like, very... We get tricked into thinking that we're, like you know, that there's like people outside of it really know who we are. But I mean, fortunately, Chris is actually, he's finally getting the exposure he deserves where he's like, you know, starting to like really branch out into like the the public spectrum. Uh, But it's still tough, you know, as a working artist to like, you know, be known, you know, in, in circles outside of just like your, your art circles, you know, or just as like photo circles or things like that. I think that's, I almost think it's by design a little bit in the sense that it's just like, you kind of like corral everybody into like their respective lanes. And it's a lot easier to deal with like the business of art. Um, but fortunately we're starting to see people like him, him bust out of that. Um, we both kind of, we, we were both fortunate enough to go to undergrad together at a school that was very progressive in the ideas of how it was teaching photography. And I think that's influenced Chris and I, in the sense that we, we don't necessarily work. We don't by by any means. We don't produce the, the same work, but um, maybe we work in some similar ideas in the sense that um, you know people use the term documentary photography. We like to say in the documentary mode because you know as a photographer, there's very much limitations on the idea that you're actually documenting something because you're always bringing your perspective. You're bringing the technical aspect of the lens, the camera, the lights, the manipulation of time and space, whatever that is. So the idea that photographs are inherently tied to facts and documentation is is flawed, but you can work in the documentary mode, which is meant to say that like, I'm very interested in exploring um, events or stories or people that have a cultural relevance or significance or an emotional, you know, an emotional timeline for something I'm trying to get at. Maybe a story I'm trying to tell or a conversation I'm trying to engage in. So I think Chris and I definitely, we both like working in, in that, in that documentary mode. And, you know, Chris would, I think you could argue for Chris actually that he takes it even a step further where he's, he's very direct about the decisions he makes when he photographs uh, it, in his desire to tell the story he wants to tell and have the conversation he wants to tell. So he's actually very brave and bold in how he does that. Um, I think I'm these days I'm, I'm more interested uh, for myself personally in exploring, you know, what it means to be a photographer, maybe showing up to like these wild places that I don't have any lineage to. Uh, when I say wild, I mean like, uh, you know, have natural beauty that's uh, outside of what I grew up accustomed to and what it means to be, to be kind of like, you know, interacting with those places and photographing and, and, you know, what is kind of my role in that? And like, you know, how does, as an artist, um, yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at some of your collections here, uh, via Morningstar a lot. Uh, I mean, you, you have a range, right? Like there's, there's uh, photos of, of people like really, high, uh, you know, detailed photos and you can kind of see, uh, that each person has their own story to tell in a sense they're they're looking at you a different way or the coloring is even different and then you go to like a city mode where you you've got like you know the the outside view of like just a city or uh, a street or something like this it will break that down for me like what what are those elements that make their way into your photography so yes yeah, so for me you know i uh, photographs for me i i think what i really fell in love with them is that they, I, for me, they had the ability to kind of access like these emotions and like these ideas and stories I brought into the images that were in front of me, like the way I would look at a picture of a person from like a Dian Arpas portrait. And I would, all these things in my head would stir around the circumstances around that photograph that obviously I was making up in my head, but like that then began to resonate with me on a personal level of like relating to like these subjects or the photographer. And so for me, photography very much operates not as like a document, but it's more kind of like, I almost look at photographs as like, uh, and this is like biting off minor white, a famous photographer, but they're almost like fragments of like memories and sequence. You know what I mean? It's like almost like uh, it's a way of trying. It's a way of for me trying to depict something I experienced uh, as like a living memory. And so it, it can never be like fully like locked down. It's always going to have some ambiguity to it, but it's like, it's almost like kind of laying in your bed in the morning, trying to remember part of a dream, Mm. but it's like a little more clear to you. So when I, when I create series of photographs, um, 
it's always based around uh, the narrative and the narrative essentially is just how the images interact with each other. And that's like a really, really beautiful thing about photography in the sense where it's like when you put, when you start putting images next to each other and in sequence with each other and looking at them in, in a very specific order or how they interact with each other, you allow for the viewer to kind of experience them in their own way as far as like, well, am I just like, oh, that's a cool picture, that's a cool picture. Or am I starting to see like a story happen here? Like, is this a place? Like, are these all a group of people? Like, is this an event that happened? Why is this this way? So photography has this really amazing ability to create its own visual language and inherently its own visual literacy. And what all of that is, is that's a tool belt for the viewer to be able to project whatever emotion uh, they want to convey onto that body of work. So for me, I like very much working in these series where there's like 40, 50, 60 images. They very calculated to go together in a book. You know, they're displayed in a show in a very specific way. And it's meant to be about the relationships between the, photo the photographs interacting with each other. Because the more that they kind of, uh, the more they're cohesive with each other in a, in a structure of a narrative, the more that the ambiguity in the individual pictures can kind of speak to the mystery that's going on in the entire body of work, which is something that is like, it's not inherent to photographs, but it's something that photographs do very magically. Yeah. I actually like put those pieces of, like, I almost bring, I have no idea about these places, no idea what that city is, but I almost feel like I'm assigning, uh, like a, a character to what I'm seeing in a sense. So really cool stuff, man. Uh, so I have Morningstar in front of me. That is going to be one of the launches here, uh, and, and releases on the Chris Gray's project platform breakdown. I mean, I think we're here at this discussion, breakdown the KGP project and what you guys are trying to do. And let's break down as well, uh, Morningstar, we can make our way into to this launch and how someone can get involved. Sure. So, I mean, it's just, thank you. It's a great, it's a great pivot point because I just got done expounding on how important sequences for photographs and for viewing the body of work as a whole. And so really that's, we got started on doing, you know, the KGP, you know, NFT books last winter when we realized that, you know, all the work was being sold on these one-to-one -one marketplaces, which is great, but there was little to no control for how we were able to kind of group these images together, aside from, you know, altering some data. And it wasn't an elegant way for us to, to kind of have the viewer engage with them all. It was it was really we were looking at a we were looking at a digital gallery. We were looking at literally a gallery, like a you know, digital gift shop. You know what I mean? Like the items were up here. Choose the one you want. Look at the information. Buy the one you want. But it's from an artist's perspective there's so much more there's like well hold on i kind of wanted you to read what the story is about i wanted you to engage in the whole thing i wanted i wanted you to not look at them and say which one is that i think is the rarest i wanted you to go through the book and say which one speaks to my heart which is the one that i identify with which is the one that i want to look at every day because it makes me feel a certain way and that's the one that i want you to have because i care less about you wanting to own the one that you think is going to be the rarest or whatever because you're not going to have any sort of emotional attachment or resonance to it you'll throw it down the river the minute that you know it no longer does something for you but if you've connected with a piece and it does something for you like you know on, on an emotional or intellectual that's always going to be with you in one way or another and that's how an artist actually grows their audience so when we saw that that was really kind of lacking in the space we also saw simultaneously the people that were so successful were were, were those were the cats that knew how to get out there and pound the pavement and get in the punks discord get on clubhouse get in all these forums to talk tell their story explain who they were who they were as an artist because many of the collectors didn't know shit from shiola about photography you know what i mean like they oh, yeah. needed someone to bridge the gap a little bit and that's not a bad thing I mean, that's it's actually that's i think it's super positive because all that means is there's an entirely new audience that isn't used to the conditioning of all this regular bullshit that's ready to just be here for the art so i mean that's the most positive thing that could possibly happen is that it's a bunch of people that don't know anything about photography so the people that were successful though early on were the people that were able to elevate themselves to have a voice tell their story you know, you see this with Justin, Drift, uh, with Chris, you know, people that were out there and active in the beginning in these discords, in these clubhouses, like having these conversations, Ruben Wu. Um, but we realized right off the bat that, number one, this thing has legs beyond our wildest dreams. We really think that this is this is the marathon. We're in this for and if we're in this for the long haul, like if we really think we could be lifers in this. 
what do we have to build and bring to the space that is going to help solve what we see being the most immediate problem a year from now, six months from now? And it was books because we realized that we're going to get to a threshold where the amount of people coming into the space versus the amount of people collecting in the space are going to be at such uh, a precipice of overload of information, inability to get on these platforms, inability to get their voice out, inability to garner the resources that to educate, um, you know, for for connection. And so we realized like these platforms are not building these the environments they're not building catalogs they're not building books you know what i mean like that so it's like we got to get out there and do that because at the end of the day the ability to bring books to the space is the ability for as a patron if someone tells you like hey you should look at this artist you don't have to tune into a spaces talk with them you don't have to talk hop into a discord with them you don't have to go searching around the internet for interviews with them you can literally buy their book from us take 10 15 minutes Go through the book, read the story, see how it resonates with you. And if you connect with the work, then you can engage with that artist on those platforms, maybe collect some of their one-to-ones, maybe follow along their journey. It's really just a, about us providing um, providing the ability for artists to like share their, their visions like in their entirety. And also give people, you know, collectors and patrons, like a little bit of an olive branch to say like, hey, you know, like we're going to try and make this a little bit easier for you to kind of like connect with what you like, you know, like that's why these formats exist to begin with. I want to ask a quick, obvious question. You guys are putting a lot of these individual uh, art pieces or photography pieces into one book. Does that increase the obviously like the price of entry point for potential people that want to collect these art? Like what is like an entry point look like for a book as opposed to an art piece? And does that limit maybe people who don't have as much money, uh, you know, that want to collect an uh, artist's work? Yeah. So to be clear, like, so when you collect a, a book with us, um, I'll use Morningstar, for example, there's going to be 550 units. And what I mean by unit is addition. It's what we call additions in the art world. Yeah. So 550 and what I mean by 550 is I don't mean you put click a button, you pay us some ETH and a gate raises. You have a token that gives you access to an IPFS carousel that's the same PDF that 3,000 other people have. What I mean by your addition is you mint a book from us. You have a tokenized PDF with other assets that's entirely unique that's been created by number. It's been literally made in the PDF maker, hand signed, hand numbered, covers, images, Extended editions, essays, media have all been altered in that unique, that 55, number 50, book number 55 has been literally opened up in the press, has been altered, adjusted, I see. minted, Did signed, you? sealed, delivered, stamped. That is tokenized to you. That is the only one of that one that ever exists. It is yours. You own it. You can do whatever you want with it. You can view it on our platform for the rest of your life if you want to. You can sell it on a secondary marketplace. But... What you're owning, you're owning that that asset. You're owning that book. So it's not that you own fifty one to ones altogether. Yep. You're owning the, the now. Don't be wrong. We we've done some some gamification where we've attached one to ones to some of these books. But the idea is, so you can buy a book from us at an entry point that is drastically lower than the cost of one of my one to ones, and that gives you access to view my whole story view the, the work in its entirety also gives you, you know, like we were talking about those traits, like the ability to access like extended editions, signature modifiers, viewing room posters, alternate covers. But also at the end of the day, there's just the, the historical provenance of the fact that we really believe that these, we think that they're the first additioned, you know, NFT books, like the first true like web three books, like you have digital ownership over a unique book. It's like the same as coming off a of press where it was handmade by someone. You know, and like so and there's only a specific amount of those. And so it lives on in the world where it's like we're not only we're getting the information out there, but we're allowing it to we're allowing it to be scarce commodity, which is the business of art. So the idea is bringing that into the space while also making it a more accessible entry point. So people can say like, hey, I want to start collecting photography. I want to get into it. Like these books have historical value and we think they're going to have insane historical value. Um, but also 
that's where we kind of like got a little wild with it, where we decided like, yeah, with our books, we're going to actually randomly attach one-to-ones to them too. So there's like, there's 50 copies of Morningstar that are going to have one-to-ones attached to them. Mm. And what I mean by attached is like, when you look at OpenSea or like in a metaverse gallery, it's going to display that one-to-one. Like that book is always going to be that one-to-one. Don't get me wrong. You have the whole book that you can view on our site and everything like that. But when you want to display it somewhere or like sell it on a secondary marketplace, it's going to be exist as that one-to-one always attached to it as the book. And so the whole idea is like, well, Hey, like let's, why don't you try this out? Why don't you see what we're doing? Like, why don't you see how a book works? Why don't you see if you enjoy books, like how they work for you? And we, you know, we're going to sweeten the pot a little bit. Like we're going to, let's like, we're going to attach one-to-ones with them. And that's why it's like, Hey, you can't afford, you know, 0.6 ETH, one ETH to go after two ETH, five ETH to go after some of these artists one-to-ones. Well, Hey, let's, we're going to give you a, a, an entry point that I, we, we think everybody's going to be pretty stoked about, uh, you know, and maybe, you know, maybe you'll get a one-to-one. And if you didn't, maybe you like the book so much that you go after one of the books on the secondary market with the one-to-one, because you feel like for you, this, this is kind of like the perfect package. There's a lot of intricacies there. Thank you for breaking down the platform in total. Cause that was really uh, important. I think the storytelling with the books uh, as it is, it's related to photography. The only analogy like that came to my mind, like initially was like, the way that uh, artists and in, in music like to like lay only as I've gotten older, have I actually been like, okay, maybe the artists like put them in this order for a reason, you know, and I've started to listen to albums that way. So then that, I think that's where it con- connected with me. And that's what you guys are trying to do is help artists in photography, tell stories uh, with these NFT books. Yeah. I mean, everyone's always going to have their bangers. Everybody's going to have their hits, but I mean, I think yeah. that's one of the beautiful things about art is like, that amazing song or that amazing poem or that, you know, like that, that one painting or that one photograph that catches your eye, that's an entry point into the artist's work as a whole. And like, you know, you might've just found your new favorite album and it's like, and then you want to experience that on a whole. So it's like, yeah, for, for artists, it's like, we operate on these kind of this duality where it's just like, we're seen as like, we're seen not only as the sum of, of our parts, but also just the strength of our individual uh, endeavors. And so, but when you can find a, find a way to give your audience the ability to engage with those things on both levels, I mean, you know, you can think of it as simple as like, we're just, you know what I mean? Like, you know, photo books are like the vinyl of like, you know, the art world. Exactly. You know what I mean? In the sense that it's like, it's, I guess it's not the same because it's like, you know, if you consider vinyl to just be like very like high end, like, I mean, we're still just trying to get the book out there. So it's like, it's not just like the highest end version of it, but I, you, know, you, like, know. you know, it's like, you know, yeah. I mean, their photo books are expensive to make, you know, they're these like luxurious items that are expensive, they're commodity. And like the audience that engages with them oftentimes covets them and collects them. And I think, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, parallels between that and some parts of music. Yeah, definitely. I think that scene where, uh, or I guess in like the 70s and 80s, like that music scene, maybe even the 60s, like the artwork on vinyl used to be a big deal. You know, it used to be, hey, this is part of my storytelling process is how this vinyl looks. And that doesn't really exist anymore. So uh, you got anything there? Yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be crazy if photographers and musicians really started getting together to make maybe maybe photo books should have music that accompanies them? As a, a little alpha on today's Nifty Q show. Guys, we are uh, sitting here with Marsh- Marshall uh, Shuttle. Make sure I get that last name right. Uh, and we have some questions here. We're uh, obviously on the Nifty Q show. It's, it's live here on YouTube, but we do uh, audio afterwards. Uh, so I want to give a quick shout out to those who are listening on Spotify or listening on Apple podcast. Uh, but we do have live comments and some of them are good. So they're going to be like some lightning questions here for you. Uh, Don R is asking, do you see a future where you market to DAOs? So to art DAOs like Ape DAO, uh, that seems like there is some big potential. I guess I would have to. I, I, don't, I would have to clarify what they mean by market too. But I guess my my base response to that would be like, oh, we want to be in. A, we want all the DAOs to be collecting us because when you really think about it, a DAO, when it comes to the arts, DAOs are, are playing out the roles of uh, collectives and galleries and museums at their most base level before the board of directors overran the thing and they had the the oil company donate the wing that dictated what they were going to be able to collect here and then DAOs are the infancy of like all that goodness 
don't get me wrong. I mean, there's so yeah, of course we want with the historical provenance of the books that we're making, we want these books to be in as many Dow's hands as possible. We want them because for us, we look at that in the same way as we'd look at getting like, you know, one of our, our physical books in the collection of like the MoMA or the Met in their library. Like, yeah, like we think, you know, this institution has prevalence in, in the space. So yeah, we want as many Dow's as possible, all the Dow's. This is dope. Uh, I think this is a cool conversation because you do a lot of like IRL photography, of course, but I think there's storytelling that even DAOs want to tell. Like there's a lot of these projects in the NFT space that talk about lore. Like how do we build out lore? And it would be cool to have your you guys in some form or fashion. I don't know how that would exist because it, it clicks in my mind with the IRL photography. But what if you could tell the story of a DAO? You know, so this is and this is okay. So this is I kind of misunderstood. I, I was thinking of in terms of like, do you want DAOs to acquire the books? That, that, that was it's, his yeah. question. But okay, yeah. but to, to your point though, I mean, and so this is what the, this is like a point that I try and and it might be until we get the books out there in the wild that people really kind of key into what my our mission statement is. But so we're a digital publisher. We are not going to be the only person making NFT books for very long. And that's a good thing because we believe that what we're doing is beneficial across the space. We want DAOs to, to make their own, you know, create their books about their stories of their existence and put them on the chain. We want other artists to make photo books, even the ones that we're not curating. We want painters, we want musicians, skateboarders, you know, like cinematographers. We, you know, there's a, we believe that there is now that we can actually bring books into the digital space play with what that even means from a content level and from a media level, but also have it exist as scarcity and commodity so that it can be an economic ecosystem around it that supports the artists and allows the patrons to engage with it on a collecting base, that we will open up the idea of what a book and storytelling can be for this whole Web3 space across the board. So yeah, we see it as we're just trying to get the boulder going. I mean, we're just trying to push yeah. it uphill enough that it's like, as soon as we get to that little point, we think the boulder is just going to like do that. Yeah. And that's great. And that's great for everybody. Like I said, it's like, we don't, we don't want to be the only digital publisher. Like it's, you know, no, it's dope because you, you like, you'll start to build something and people in the web three space are so awesome that they think like eight steps ahead. They're like, okay, so you're building this. What about this, this, and this, and this. And yeah, we have to, you know, get past step one for sure. And which you guys are doing. And I appreciate that. Uh, got some other questions, lightning round, uh, here as well. What rights are conveyed in the smart contract? So for you know, for books, it's like a little easier as far as like the murkiness behind it, because it's like, you know, the commercial commercial usage of books. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, they exist as whereas like, you know, one to ones, there's a little more murkiness around the, the commercial usage rights. Um, but for us, what I will say is like, you know, as being a book, like you don't have the commercial usage rights to to. I don't even know how you would do this, but take that book and use it in a commercial advertising purpose. What I will say is that um, if you, if you pull, if you mint a book that has a one-to-one -to, -one to it, it'll be kind of a standard, it'll be a standard photography space contract, similar to things like that quantum um, and fellowship use where it's like you have the, the individual rights to it and everything like that, but it, you don't have the commercial rights to like, you know, take that, sell that image to a company to use in, in advertising. So that's, that's pretty standard across the space. It's, it's really, we like to think of it in terms of not to gloss over it too much, but it's like, you own what you own. Yeah. If you want to like, if you want to like, you know, if, if Microsoft's like, Hey, like, can we buy this image to, to use in this thing? Like, I, you know, that gets into a whole different market territory, but it, yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of like owning Nike shoes and someone else saying, Hey, can we use the Nike logo in our, in our commercial? It's like, I don't own Nike. Yeah. I just own Nike yeah. shoes. But but our, our, our books are one-to-ones. You do whatever you want yeah. with them on secondary marketplaces. You trade them. You sell them. You you lock them away on a vault. How, that's I love thinking about this now. I cannot wait. Well, I have some now, but I can't wait till people have uh, have books on their hard wallets. It's just such a crazy idea for me. And like also just like on their tablet, you know, connecting their mat, their wallets to their tablets and like walking around mm. the, the digital coffee table, if you will. Yeah, no, no, I, t I totally get it. I think even, how can I say this? Even the process of going to a website and having your MetaMask like populate the website is such a cool concept. And if you do that IRL where you go to someone's house and maybe you can unlock something like a like a photography book, like a coffee table situation you're talking about, I love I love that. Uh, another great question comes from Coca Jenkins. I want to give a shout out to Don R that that was his last question. But Coca says, has there been any pushback in the photography world like there's been with gamers with NFTs and play to earn? So if you're not familiar, like a bunch of these big companies 
are coming out saying, hey, we want to implement NFTs. Gamers who actually really suck at change, so that I'm not surprised. They're like, no way, like no NFTs. This is a scam. Has there been any pushback from the photographers in the traditional scene from yeah. what you're trying to do in NFTs? That's so funny of the gamer arguments. Like, how many of y'all play like RuneScape, Team Fortress 2, World of Warcraft? I mean, you've been selling NFTs, you just didn't know it. Um, there has been extreme pushback. Uh, and it's very much to the point where we actually like we're very um, when it comes to like the the kind of outreach and marketing about getting our project, you know, leading into launch out there, we've actually chosen to to not we'd have it in certain channels um, outside of this ecosystem because what we found is that there is there's a FUD and sentiment that centers around kind of two misinformed arguments that have been weaponized for the ability for people that are standing in a position of existing influence and monetary benefit that don't want these things to succeed until they've had enough time to figure out how to get their cut. And so this pushback centers around two basic arguments, which are Number one, the environmental impact, which the inside joke for us as photographers is like, you're really going to like when other photographers make this argument or curators or, you know, like critics that make the the environmental argument. I'm like, y'all are going to pretend like we were not going to talk about the fact that everything we make is on varnished on unrecyclable paper is used in shipping lanes and containers. And like, like every from head to toe, what you don't even want to talk about museum glass and frames everything head oh my god gator board sintra the things that photographs are mounted on from head to toe everything about the production of photographic prints and books is in is terrible for the environment and so it's just like at at best your argument is like well is this is this a safe pivot from you know but i mean the reality of the situation is the environmental narrative like if you actually have research into what we're doing let alone i could talk for days about energy web chain and solana and, and different things as far as like where we're going once these books scale up to a certain level as far as you know uh things we're concerned with the environment but i mean we're already partnered with hash apps on that we do there's going to be uh, you know carbon offsets and things so anyways but the second argument is we'll have a carbon offsets conversation on the next one yeah. <laughs> But I mean, and, but for real though, I mean, we're getting the ball rolling and yeah, we're, we're working on the chain that we're working on now, but if these things, you know, as these things scale up, like, yeah, there are other chains dealing with renewable energy, you know, that, that we are very much, uh, I myself personally am invested in, um, that I will be exploring when it comes to the other argument is like, oh, well, all you artists are being these, like these dirty digital capitalists, you know what I mean? And like, that is like the biggest red herring you can ever see, which is basically someone being like, well, listen, I know that the way things right now are broken, but I don't have a solution. So I'm just going to neg you. So it's like, <laughs> it's like, how dare, how dare all of you like find a way to monetize your artwork and make some money like in this dirty digital web space of all these backhanded like interactions and dealings. These, these are, and I, I'm trying not to swear. These are the same MRFers that are you can say it. in these are the same motherfuckers behind curtains that are manipulating charity auctions to fucking raise the price of their additions and shit. And they're washing the money off their options trades into like whatever artist that this gallerist that grew up with somebody in this portion of the country told them to do and latch onto so that they could all pump their bags, throw them in a vault somewhere next to an airport. And like these motherfuckers are coming in being like, oh, you dirty kids and your yeah. internet. Like you can't, you, no, 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 no. This is like yeah. a big boys game. You, you can't, you can't have a seat at the table. Uh, uh-uh. It's, it's like just, we do, we do all this shady shit in, in the normal like process that we're doing. Don't change up this process at all. Yeah. And that's why I've yet to see, and I'm sure that there's someone that's put together a good argument about it, but I very rarely see an argument that accompanies that FUD. That's just like, Oh, well, you're all being these like dirty capitalists. You're monetizing your work. You're using these, they shouldn't, this wild west, you shouldn't be using it. It's never accompanied with any sort of a substantial argument or solution because I've listened and I've posed the question. I said, okay, we're trying to build something that gives act like, listen, shit, at the end of the day, we're a publisher. I'm trying to publish books from people from parts of the world that have never gone to art school, have never stepped foot in a museum, have never stepped foot in an art gallery, have a story that's resonant that I want to tell, learn photography off a YouTube tutorial, don't even know the first thing about Twitter spaces. I want to bring stories from people in parts of the world that in your traditional system would never see the goddamn light of day. I want to be able to give them a platform to share what they're doing. And you're coming at me with this whole like, well, you know, you should just wait until we have a better solution. I'm like, well, what's your better solution? They want someone to do it for them what they 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 want they want time mm-hmm. 
they want time to figure out how they insert themselves in a position of power into this ecosystem that's taken off without their knowing. They're scared of it. They don't understand it. They don't know where to start. And so instead of actually exploring it, instead of actually learning about it, instead of actually engaging with it and coming up with some sort of a solution, they're going to take the stance of, well, if I hold on to my, if I stand on my little bastion, you know, of the old world long enough, like I'll be able to maintain my position of power. And it's like, just let the old gods die. You know, like we didn't, you know, we didn't need you. You've been broken. You, know? you, you, you saw the same argument with Bitcoin and, and the bankers trying to, you know, get in position to make sure that they set up themselves in this new world. Uh, so yeah, it's the same thing all over whenever you get the innovation. Coke is making a great point. He's saying, wow, never thought about the physical waste. The space will just get more energy efficient in the future. I mean, that there's a positive impact on the world. <laughs> you can actually... And, and the thing is too, it's like you also look at the business of art as far as where it's limited to. And so, and like, this is a real argument. How many people from parts of the world have access to what we consider to be like world-class museums? How many people in parts of the world have access to photo bookstores? You know, how many people can go to the colleges, be in the in these ecosystems of these galleries? How many wow. people in the traditional physical world can experience fine art? It's elitist. It's based on colonialism and imperialism. I mean, it's literally, its roots are tied into the idea of capitalistic economics. And so when you look at this space and the possibilities of what that have to do, I just find it so laughable when some of these critics and institutions are like, you know, like, you know, poo-pooing on all this stuff. And it's just like, man, you know, like, yo, we're just trying to like open this, we're trying to open this pit up. You know what I mean? And like at the end of the day, like that's what it's all about. And like, to your point, it's like, yeah, you'll see, you know, you'll see, <laughs> you'll see like all these people like in these traditional economic sectors, like, you know, talking all this shit about like Bitcoin and blockchain and everything like that. And meanwhile, like we all know the giant bags that are sitting in an offshore account, man. You know what I mean? It's just like, we know it's all there. It's just positioning. It's posturing for positioning. I don't want to turn this into like a political podcast, but you don't see it at any more rate than you do at like Capitol Hill and like with the politicians where they, you, they are owning and trying to get involved in Bitcoin while actively fighting against it for the last couple of years. So it's just, yeah, we won't go there. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I sometimes reference that this can turn into an Alex Jones podcast at some point, but we won't go there. Uh, <laughs> but we will. Uh, we, I, I think there was one last question I did want to get to you. Oh, augmented reality. How do you view augmented reality as an artist? Uh, and does that play into like maybe something you guys would do with books in the future? I came from a background where I was taught that like the gallery was the penultimate space in which to view artwork, that it's pristine presentation and all the trimmings around it. Uh, as I've grown older, I've realized how limited and how by design prohibitive that has been for the rest of the world. Because just because I live in New York City and I get to go to the fancy gallery and experience the fancy fine art and 98% of the rest of the world never has a chance to does not mean that that is the penultimate form in which to view. It's dictated like that so people can sell you those things off that wall for thousands of dollars. It's not dictated like that because that's the best way to experience it. Augmented reality, metaverse spaces are a chance for us to bring viewing art and experiencing art to the entire world without limitation. Well, I mean, the limitation of a headset, but, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll, cost we'll go move down. further on that. Yeah. So I couldn't be more excited about the opportunities that present. I mean, that's why we, we even thought about it in terms of like the, you know, in designing the books, the ones that have the one-to-ones, we're setting it up so that like, if you have those in a wallet, the ability to moving forward to display those in metaverse, you know, galleries. So the idea that it's like, you could have books in your wallet that allow you to do like a gallery show. And you're like the only one that could maybe do that gallery show, but everyone has access to it. You know, so for us, uh, we've seen some, you know, Alejandro Cartaniega did some wild stuff with Fernando Gallegos uh, in this fall when it came to what it means to be like in a show. It was like being in a house that was like moving and like all this other stuff. So it's going to get crazier. And I'm sure all for it, all for it. Like, I want to like, you know, that is. Yeah. I mean, let's be clear. I, we kind of feel like we we're we're in like a lane that has a very, very long runway to it um, for the things that we want to engage with, you know, like things like tablet usage and, and, and app integration are the start. But where we go from here, as far as like engaging in digital gallery spaces and um, I mean, shit, we're going to do when we launch Morningstar, we're going to do the first, we're going to do an artist talk on Twitch and we're going to stream it onto the wall of our crypto voxels gallery. So just the idea that we can have a digital a digital opening mm -hmm. that does not happen in the real, you know, in IRL, but anybody in the world can just pop into voxels, yeah. you know, and view like for us, 
couldn't be more excited. Yeah, you know, Gabe from BitLectro uh, is working on the project, of course, with you. And uh, it's cool seeing him in CryptoVoxels. Like, the live DJ sets in CryptoVoxels mm-hmm. are just like, it's a little, it takes you out of normal society and saying that I'm here, Gabe is there, and it's just, you, your mind kind of gets warped a little bit. So, it's it's pretty cool, man. I Honestly, I was excited for this conversation because I knew that you were going to kind of unlock some things in my brain about where photography goes and where art goes. Uh, so I appreciate that, you know, very much. Uh, I don't, I mean, we're getting up to the end. We're almost at an hour. Uh, I did have some questions related to like display that we went over last week. So like if somebody wants to get involved, like for myself that wants to get more involved in photography, like let's talk about the platforms that I need to be visiting other than uh, KGP. And then uh, also those displays. Cause that's a really cool thing for me is like to be able to display NFT artwork and I want to know where to go. So, um, you know, right now the, the the sites that have probably the most prominence in this space are going to be Foundation, um, you know, OpenSea if you have, you know, the ability to kind of be directed to, you know, but I mean, you can even just, I'm, on OpenSea, I mean, you can still even just click on Explore, you know, and, and photography and pull those collections up. Um, there's a there's definitely a gravitation towards Foundation uh, more and more these days, depending on kind of when you minted your work and stuff. Like, it's weird saying that. It's like, I have a collection up on OpenSea, but I minted in February of 2021. So there's like a historical provenance that comes with like the time period that the photography was put on OpenSea mm. that in a weird way, I feel kind of like removes me from some of the, the OpenSea FUD. I don't know. It's That's confusing. But anyways, OpenSea Foundation, uh, Super Rare also has, you know, a pretty impressive roster. Um, that is definitely, that is a curated platform though. Um, Fellowship does, uh, Fellowship and Assembly do curated drops. Quantum right now is probably like the 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 machine in this space as far as just like they do uh, multi weekly photography drops, and then they're I don't know they're selling out in like thirty seconds on the regular. Um, it's pretty crazy. So Quantum is really great when it comes to like engaging with that work. Now that's a whole different issue. I mean, we touched before on like Citrus is in development. I'm interested to see what happens with that. You know, I do displays in crypto voxels. Uh, I know a lot of friends that are using on Cyber right now. Um, you know, there's stuff with central land. There are these other like kind of like curated gallery pages to attach your wallets to. But to be honest with you, all that stuff is kind of in flux right now. Um, you know, I, I think some of the, I've seen some really cool on cyber galleries. I've seen some really cool crypto voxels galleries. It's just kind of like how crazy you want to get with it. Do, do um, you have any, do you have any ones that someone could visit? Like what, what are some cool crypto voxels galleries that they could visit? I'll even link it in the description afterwards. Oh, cool. I don't have the, if you can, I oh mean, I don't know if it's still up, but if you can find, if there's a record of that, the show that uh, Alejandro Carciniega and Fernando Gallegos did in the fall, I mean, it could still be up, um, but there should be documentation of it somewhere. It was like, I think it was called something in the city. It's like this like living, breathing salon of an art gallery experience. It's pretty amazing. Um, you know, we have a, we have a, we have a bookstore in CryptoVox as well as too. And it's like a very, you'll, it feels like a traditional gallery, but you can check that out too. Like it's got Morningstar work up on the top floor and stuff. Uh, but yeah, definitely if, if you can source, definitely check out that, that thing that Alejandro did with Fernando. Uh, displays that I can go. I know we touched on this on NFT live yesterday, but just kind of give me like a 30 second roundup of like different options there because a lot, some people are like, man, you should just display that on your, your TV screen. Like why pay two G's for this essentially thing that is just going to display an NFT the way, the same way that a TV could. So I have, I haven't taken the leap yet, but I think I'm doing, I hopefully am doing this thing with super rare in March where I'm going to kind of like get my feet wet on, on the display. Um, or sorry, not super rare, uh, super cheap. <laughs> um, so many, everything's super. Um, what I would just say to the audience is I would just be a little cautious about when you're sourcing um, high-res TVs that double as display monitors. Because what you're really looking for uh, when it comes to like an optimal display for your work is like something that's going to have like, uh, it's not going to have as intensive a backlighting gamut as well. Uh, sorry, that doesn't make sense. It's not going to have as intense of um, a native kind of backlight uh, the way it's it's pushing that's it's out to you you're going to want something that's like a little more matte it's not going to look as impressive at the gate i guess is what i'm saying it's not going to look as like shiny and like but what you're really looking for is something that is actually as minimalistic as possible something that's pretty flush 
has like a, a matte finish to it, um, has an incredible color spectrum gamut, but doesn't push like these dynamic ranges and contrast ratios that blast the stuff at you. Because the reality of the situation is you want this stuff to sink into your wall because it'll be cool for a week or two if it's just like there. booming at you. But listen, we all know that feeling of like when you get a good new graphics card and like you, you fire up the, you know, the game and you just stare at it and you're just like, yeah. And it can be the same way with art on those screens. But then after like a couple of days, you're just like, I can't look at this thing anymore. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so you want something that you want something that is as minimal as possible. You want something that is uh, more of a matte, more of a, a, a wide color gamut, but uh, easy on the backlighting, easy on the contrast, easy on the high dynamic range. Awesome, man. That was a great breakdown. This has been a great episode. Uh, guys, if you want to check more about what Marshall is doing with KGP Project, I will link everything in the description. Marshall, you laid it down uh, from an NFT photography uh, standpoint and just kind of letting us know about the art industry as well. Fantastic, uh, fantastic answers to these questions, man. Uh, last question I have, you said you bartended a little bit. I'm a, I, I do it from home. I just kind of like making drinks. Big old-fashioned guy. I like the bourbon with the old-fashioned. What is your favorite favorite drink to make as a bartender funny story well okay so i'm gonna admit i sneak out once or twice a month and i don't tell anybody i go i still go i go moonlight because i can't get away from it Uh, i'll always do it and i actually i met gabe i was bartending at a bar where some of these photographs were shot in and gabe was djing that's how we know each other Mm. 10 years ago uh my favorite sorry was it favorite drink to make or favorite drink to drink both Ooh, my favorite drink to make is a amf because I think it's hysterical. And I often ask young kids when they order it, how blue do you want it? And they get very confused. And I ask for a one to 10. Um, <laughs> and AMF is like a blue Long Island iced tea. Okay. My fa- <laughs> That's just for my personal enjoyment. My favorite drink to drink is probably, uh, it's either going to be a Negroni or a Boulevardier. Awesome. All right. This was the Nifty Q show. Hopefully you enjoyed uh, this conversation. I certainly did. Uh, We're here every Wednesday and Thursday. Guys, please leave likes, uh, sub to the channel if you like the content. Uh, We're going to wave bye to the viewers uh, here, our vibe, our tribe. Uh, And Marshall, you got anything, last things you want to say to the audience or, or anything before I shut us down? Thank you for having me here. Obviously, the platform is a privilege to me. But most importantly, thank you for having this discussion because being able to have these talks it's not about educating an audience. It's about providing information out in the open so people can learn about the different spaces, learn about the different art. This is 20, everyone says 2022 is going to be the year of this. 2022 is going to be the year of open dialogue and open information. So thank you so much for having me. Oh my God. Good. good. I, I'm not going to say anything else. Goodbye guys. See you next time.